Hello, and welcome to the Hunting Science Podcast, where we talk about the science of hunting. I'm your host, Mark Lindbergh. Our goal for this podcast is to educate listeners about the how and why things work the way they do in hunting in the outdoor world. Today, I'm talking to someone who will be familiar to many of you, especially on Instagram. Um, You have a ton of followers there. Um, It's Phil Conkey, and I'm talking to him. He's in South Carolina, or South Carolina. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm on the election here in South Dakota. I'm I'm talking to him from the studio here in Fairbanks, Alaska. But we got a pretty good connection, and uh, we want to talk to Phil today about his knowledge and the science of um, the photography does, as well as um, duck hunting. We're going to get into that towards the end of the podcast. Um, before I let Phil introduce himself and, and strike into this podcast, I just want to circle back a little bit. I'm getting some questions about what we define as science, and it's a fair question, and um, I'm not always talking to people who are trained scientists, but in my opinion, and in therefore in the podcast, um, we're, we're classifying science as information or knowledge collected in a repeatable way. And um, many of these people, like Phil today, have incredible experiences that they've accumulated over the years, might even be multi-generational. And uh, we consider that to be scientific knowledge and valuable information. Some of you might have heard this even called formally as traditional ecological knowledge or Uh, local ecological knowledge, and I think that very much applies to today's speaker as as well as uh, Mike Gould in episode two, if you remember that podcast. He is the most knowledgeable individual I ever spoke to about dog training and dog breeding, and um, that is all knowledge gained through experiences. So just with that uh, slight preamble, um, I wanted to clarify how we're approaching these podcasts and our definition of science. And uh, with that, I want to give Phil a chance to give us his resume, uh, um, both in terms of his hunting experiences and photography experience. All right. I like that description of science, by the way, just as in terms of um, maybe a, a practical knowledge of, of some of the ways we interact with with animals and whatnot um but anyways i i've been waterfall hunting and around that since i was like seven or eight years old i'm now 43 years old so that gives you any idea 30 35 years or whatnot that i've been involved in, in chasing ducks and really that sparked just my interest in ducks in general. My dad, of course, like most people who, who waterfall hunt, um, they got I got started with him, watching him before I was old enough to go with, seeing him do all the things, getting decoys ready and having them out in the yard, getting his you know his um, canvas waders ready back then, and all that type of stuff. And I saw all of that and I watched it and I didn't really know what was going on what the actual hunt was like. And then as soon as I was old enough to be carried out into the marsh, basically, and, and get a pair of hip boots, um, I was going with and had, a, I think the first year I just had a pellet gun or a BB gun. And then after that, I had a 410, of course. And when I started that, I mean, that very first morning that we went out, 
and we went over and it was dark and it wasn't really cold, but it was just a big experience and an adventure and something different that I'd ever experienced at that point in time. And ever since then, I've always just been enthralled really with the whole process of water, of all kinds of waterfowl hunting, but also just with ducks in general. And and I was lucky enough to live where I grew up was in a, a somewhat small town in Minnesota and we had two lakes okay. right in town. And, and that, that, um, that kind of provided a, a way for me to be around waterfall all the time. From the time I was little and I could ride my bike down and just be around them. So that's what got me going on, on duck hunting. And from there I've kind of taken it to where I've, it will travel pretty much up and down the entire Mississippi and Central Flyway, hunting ducks in all sorts of different environments. Typically, um, on kind of do-it-ourselves type hunts where we just go to find a spot that we've wanted to hunt for a while or that we've heard of, and me and a couple of friends will go and um, just kind of make things happen as we can and learn as we go. And that really is the exact reason why I started taking uh, waterfowl photos, which is pretty much what I'm known for, for photography or what I was, I guess still probably am, just taking photos of birds. I just always remember seeing when I was little, the covers of DU or, uh, you know, there wasn't nearly the, the, photog- the bird photography then that there has been in recent years just due to equipment. Um, but as that, as that started to grow and develop, I wanted to be able to reproduce those images of myself, things I've seen while out hunting. And that really got me kind of kickstarted into that. And as I've, the year I kind of really decided just to leap in, which was probably 10 or 11 years ago, and really make a go of it just as a hobby. I guess I, my hunting experience paid off in that. And it was, it's just been something fun to do. And I love sharing those images with people. And, and ever since then, I've kind of started to expand the, some of the parameters that I take photos of, but in the, just the, the general hunting realm as well too, and just capturing images of, of the things that we see and experience on a daily basis as hunters. Um, that's kind of a, a, a background, I guess. No, that's great. And when did you move to South Dakota? Um, let's see. It have been 2007. Um, I've been, I'd worked for Cabela's in the, on the management side of life of retail stores there. For probably six or seven years at that point, and then I had the opportunity to uh, move out here for a, um, I guess you tell a promotion in my job, but also the most important thing there was a promotion in the hunting ability of the of the locale. I moved to near Mitchell, South Dakota, which is where there was a Cabela's retail store there. Okay. And as soon as I, as soon as the word South Dakota was brought up, I made a phone call to a buddy that knew that had lived in the area, and I asked him what waterfowl hunting was like, duck hunting specifically was like right around Mitchell. He said, "Pretty darn good." And I kind of looked up on the map and saw where it was in relation to all these places I wanted to hunt and have hunted prior. And I said, "Well, it doesn't take much to convince me." So I was gone. Cool, neat. And before we dive into the photography aspect, I was just wondering if you, I, people hate this question, as you may have heard in the other podcasts, just defining yourself as a hunter, what's sort of the ideal hunt? What's your favorite hunt uh, day out? Um, you know, on a duck hunt, really what it would be would be like the absolute 
perfect day would be uh, you wake up in the morning and you walk out of the house and it's about 20, 25 degrees. The stars are out. Good south, southeast wind, about 15 miles an hour after a cold front like that. And then um, hunting a spot that's typically my favorite is a big river system or a big marsh area that has a lot of birds on it, but not necessarily using the exact area that we're hunting. And more so we're hunting a spot where birds are just flying over and we're just putting ourselves underneath them and bringing them in through calling and hiding decoys and all that. And mallards, a mallard hunt. Yep. When I say, when I talk duck hunting, it's pretty much focused around mallards. Well, so. you, you hunt divers with your camera more so it seems like so. Uh, yeah. The spring, cause in the, cause all the, all the photos, majority of my actual duck photos are taken in the spring i'm on on the return migration so yeah. i'm not yet strong enough to get myself to leave the gun down during hunting season and pick up the camera for birds i can do it for all the other stuff but for birds it's hard to, to get over that yet huh, that's interesting i'm still wrestling with that as well but i usually if i'm hunting with a, a group of people i usually let them shoot first and then I go last, but um, but it's tough. <laughs> it's very tough. Yeah. So I really want to talk. To, I mean, your bird photography is amazing. And, and thank you for sharing with the rest of us that are getting back into photography and trying to learn. I mean, you jump started my ability to get back into photography and it, your resources were great for that. But I really want to eventually and quickly here get to talking about your photos of hunting scenes um i know you're putting down the gun occasionally or or at least mm-hmm. before you could pick it up but maybe just as background and, and just remind people what kind of equipment you're shooting with just the technical aspects of that just so uh, folks okay. know what we're talking about yeah. there so um, if, you're, if you're looking at my bird photos bird in flight especially um, almost all of those 99 percent of those have been taken with canon gear um, pretty much from the one, that 1D line that they have, um, starting, I think I had the 1D2, 1D4, and then most recently I had the one, a 1DX. Um, I'm jonesing for one of those. You got to tell people that you got to have that. My wife needs to hear you say that. That's the <laughs> I'll, body I'll you need. Special, I'll put a special link up on just for you. <laughs> okay. Appreciate that. <laughs> and, and you know it's, it's hard because I get asked a lot what equipment I use, and I, I hate to say those cameras, but I've never had the I've never had the newest version of those cameras. I've always bought used, um, usually one or two generations old. Um, what's out there? So a guy doesn't have to have the most brand new piece of equipment by any means to get these images. I was just learning how to use that specific camera, but that that specific line of cameras along with now there's, there's a lot more cameras that are like this that just have that, um, that are geared toward an amazing autofocus system. And that's really the one difference between things I've chosen to use for bird photography, um, versus like now what I use for kind of my lifestyle photography. Cause I, I can't think of any other, um, any other type of photography where the, the limits of the, of the autofocus system are pushed to the extremes like they are in shooting a bird that's, you know, two feet 
the body is maybe what eight inches wide coming at you and coming at you at 50 miles an hour with a with a cluttered background of cattails or trees or water or whatever so that is extremely difficult technically and those cameras can help offset some of that and just how they how you can adjust them and how they work um, so that's that is important that is an important piece but there are other cameras that will do a very good job of that as well um, and you're shooting. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, you're ahead. shooting that largely that 100 to 400 lens. That's your go-to. Yeah. Yeah. My last, my last lens I had in Canon was the 100 to 400 version two. Okay. And I, I do, I really like that lens. It's super versatile. Um, prior to that, I had that 405.6, which was an amazing little lightweight lens. I just didn't like the not being able to zoom out because there's a lot of times where you can get. Not a ton of times, but enough times where you get some really, really cool shots with being able to, to back out to 200 or 100 and then still get into 400 and, and that quick. Um, but I did sell all my Canon stuff here this past year, and I'm going to I need to get on that now that I think about it. It's finding, um, I'm going to try this, a Sony A9, and they have that new um, 200 to 600 lens. I just wanted something that had that little extra reach without having to put an uh, extender on. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to give that a shot this spring and I've been shooting a Sony now the last two full hunting seasons for all of my lifestyle and hunting photos. Yep. I just haven't really used one for, for the bird thing. So I'm a little nervous coming into March here with, without the kind of tried and true system, but it'll be a, a bit of an adventure, I think. So, We'll okay. See how it goes. And you went to the Sony uh, lighter weight, or um, you know, not so much that. Although at first I didn't like it because it was smaller, but now I love it. But the, the main thing I went to there, um, a friend of mine uh, who does a bunch of lifestyle photography, Sam Sold, had a Sony, and he was telling me about it. And a couple of the main things that I really love for for that lifestyle deal is one the the uh, high ISO capabilities of that camera it's the sony a7 III. i mean they absolutely blew the doors off of what i had before um, i've shot i've taken images at twenty-five thousand iso twelve thousand iso and they're really very usable um, with just a little bit of of uh, noise um, noise reduction so that's been huge because one of my favorite things that i like to do in this lifestyle thing is get those low light images that are really moody and all that. Yeah. We can get into that later. Yeah. Um, but that, that's given the ability to do a lot more of that without, and then capture a lot more detail and more kind of bang. Um, so between, so between that high ISO capability, um, some different focusing capabilities, and then they have, um, geez, I can't think of the name of it right now. Um, the capability when you're manually focusing, that it puts a um, like a, a red fringe around the areas that are in focus. I cannot think what the name of that is offhand, <laughs> but it's something that when you're working really, really low light, it's it's really slick because um, a lot of times you can't use autofocus when it's basically almost blackout. Right. But that still allows you to get some some idea where your focus is at in those situations, and that's been really really slick too. So those are the main the main reasons. I mean. I kind of, it, it was an expensive switch because their their lenses are expensive and the bodies are expensive. But huh. I guess once you make that initial 
kind of painful switch. It's when you got it and you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, I'd be really curious to see what you learned this spring with that autofocus because, as you point out, I still shoot Canon um, and that autofocus system. And I do quite a bit of sports photography, and it's amazing for that. Um, Oh, yeah. I went, yeah, anyways, that autofocus is essential for some of that. That Sony A9 gets so many good reviews on on that, but I'm just nervous because you don't. I don't know any. There's not a lot of people that do the exact thing like I do. I mean, there's only probably it's very small that really concentrate on it like that. And I don't know of anyone in that realm that uses it for incoming duck photos. And so it'll be kind of dip my toes into that. And I guess if I don't like it, I'll be looking on the used market for a. 1DX and a 100 again <laughs> right. real quick. So. Right. Well, we'll be we'll, we'll be paying attention to see what you learn. We, uh, as you know, we we thought about trying to get you up here to Alaska. It would have been a good proving ground for that, but uh, schedules didn't allow. So maybe in the future, we get you up. And no, you, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. So, yeah, and your bird photography. I mean, it's amazing, and it's clear you've many people think that. But you're, it's really your hunting lifestyle stuff that you're growing into more and more, it seems like. And I'm talk about that a little bit more and maybe the technical aspects. You got into the high ISO a little bit. Um, yeah. You're shooting higher ISO than we do for northern lights photography, although the exposure there is is uh, much longer. But, um, yeah, but it's it both the technical aspects, but I guess – you know, the main, what are you trying to accomplish with that? I mean, it, it's, I see the message and you, sometimes you have the text message, but, yeah. um, and I, some really powerful messages sometimes, but maybe you could talk about that and, and talk us through the technical and then what do you, what are you thinking about when you're doing that? Um, you nailed part of it, part of it, so much of it. When I started the photography thing, I, I, I basically, I couldn't have any less interest. I couldn't have had any less interest in taking photos of people or dogs or that type of stuff. I was all about the birds and that's all I wanted to do. And then after a few years <coughs> of hunting and I had this, I had all this camera gear sitting at home while I was out hunting and I'm thinking to myself, well, it's kind of a waste. And I saw images that other people were creating. I'm like, man, I can like, I'm sure I could do this and and be able to recreate some of the, the scenes and the images and the feelings and, and relate some of those emotions that I'm seeing other people do and have my own memories on an image or on canvas or however I want to do it. And so I, I slowly, probably, was it 2020 now? Probably in 2015, I think I started bringing my cameras with. I was hunting just a little bit more. And I wasn't good because I had I had all the technical abilities because I don't think you can really get more difficult, um, technically speaking, than shooting these ducks, um, you know, with exposure and focus and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the the thing I didn't really have and, and I've been learning with and it's been really fun is the creative side. And that whole aspect, because when I first tried, I mean, if I look back in my my folders in Lightroom from five years ago, it's almost embarrassing to think 
the images that I thought were good. And now I look at them, I just kind of cringe. Um, and then the next year is a little bit better, and the next year a little bit better. And these last two or three years, I feel like I've made ginormous strides in with what um, my capabilities are and the amount of time I've spent on it and learning and learning through error and all that kind of stuff. And what I'm really trying to, to relate, I think, more than anything is those those special moments throughout a day that as a hunter that maybe we we think of, but we don't have a way to relate to them right away. Um, it's kind of hard to explain because sure, I, guess I, I came into hunting photography as a hunter first and then a photographer, whereas a lot of photographers, I think, come into it as photographers and they get kind of pushed into whatever realm of photography they do. So I've had all these, these things in my head of the parts of the morning that I love and the parts of the afternoon that I love and the pickup and all that type of stuff. So I try to catch the little niches of that, um, that, you know, maybe people don't get to see or see represented. And so that's hence one of the reasons why I love that low light photography, because it's, it's not easy and you don't necessarily see as much of it. And that and to give people a way to relate to that is the kind of the things that I'm, I'm going for more than anything, I guess, to kind of touch that little nerve that that gets them in there and be able to use the technical abilities that I have had for whatever, whether doing landscape. So I did, I did landscape photos a lot for a few years. So between that and my and the, the bird stuff, I had that, I had both the equipment and the technical skills, but just not the, that creative side and, and developing that has been something that's been sort of fun and I've enjoyed seeing my own progress in it and kind of getting my way out of the pigeonhole of just being a bird photographer has been kind of fun too. So, Yeah, and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's been a little while ago you posted a photo and uh, um, I forget the exact comment that a, a hunter made and you said, it was of some dead birds, um, and it was very discreet and and very t- tasteful. But you said, I you know I think it's about more than just dead birds these days, and um, it's something to that effect. And I, I that's probably why we're talking today because you hit a nerve with me on that. And I guess your hunting lifestyle photography, I could see appealing to hunters and non-hunters, and maybe even anti-hunters. Um, I, you know, it, it captures an essence of a moment and I, I didn't know if that was your goal, but for me, it, it, um, I think we need to do more in terms of recruiting hunters, especially. And, um, and it seems like you're, you're going that direction with your photography is my interpretation. I, I like that. Um, I've, I've thought of that a fair amount because even with the large amount of people that see my my photos and and the images and my my Instagram page or whatever it is and and there's I don't have a ton of dead birds on there but enough I mean there's sure. you know it's, it's mixed between being a photographer and a hunter mm-hmm. so I like to have some to show the my haunts and all that and for the amount of people outside of the hunting world that I suspect see my images I get very little negative feedback from the anti-hunting crowd. I mean, I, I I would imagine that 
just on Instagram in the what, four years or five years I've had that page now, I would have to imagine it's had millions upon millions upon millions of people have seen those images. And I'm sure a lot of them are, cause depending on the tags that you use and all that, people are going to see them. And occasionally, I'll, I'll get a lot of, uh, I, I look at the people who like my photos sometimes and they're not hunters, you can tell. And I still have only had... I think less than 15 comments that were negative about, you know, why would you kill such a pretty bird or you're a jerk or you're this, you're that type thing. I've had I mean, very few considering how much, how much play they get out on, on the internet, which everybody knows what that can turn into. Um, and so, and, the, and part of that is I think because of the way I represent hunting, it's not, a video walking down a line of 50 dead geese and it's i'm not trying to make the i want to make the the birds the subject of a thing the the experience and the process of hunting um, a focus and not make the killing of the birds the focus yeah and i and I, I, I i see that in your images i don't and and I don't know if others do, but I, I think you're accomplishing it. For me, and I'm not nearly the photographer you are, but two things about I'm not opposed to photos of dead birds. I mean, that's fine. That's food, as yeah. you, you might yep. see on meat eaters. They advertise it. I, it's just yep. it's so easy from a photography standpoint. It's not very challenging. And the second is, I, I guess I always think, who's this appeal to? And it only appeals to hunters, I think. And... Yeah, um, in, in the main, um, yeah. and I just think that we need to do more with declining number of hunters with our photography, I guess, to try to try to recruit more and maybe reactivate people. And I could see someone going, boy, I want to get up in the morning and experience that scene um, yeah. as much as kill a bird, if not more so. And um, yeah. and I I see even in these major photo contests now. I think this last year, Diverge was, um, you know, they were advertising, we want to see, I forget how they phrased it, but the, the hunting experience, not just the end result or something of that nature. And I think others are picking up on what it seems to me you're trending, you've been trending towards for a while. Yeah, for sure. You know, in, the, in, these, in these ways, that kind of stuff is a way to start a lot of dialogues because um, even with some of those folks that have had negative uh, comments on my page, I'll, I'll take the time and actually just DM them directly and have a conversation with them. And a lot of times if once you explain some of the stuff and they look at other images and read things and see what's going on, I think that you can help kind of change that, the mindset that they have. And I also feel like I've even had, had some people comment kind of like in the middle of the road where there's, you know, they don't love the, they maybe question, they maybe question, you know, geez, you, you take all these beautiful images. How can you shoot them? And that opens a chance to talk to them about it and explain that, yeah, there's definitely a lot of that out there in the world where it looks as if hunting is a hundred percent based on the trophy, whether it's a pile of ducks or a big deer or an elephant or whatever someone wants to go after. But if you can sit down and talk to them a little bit and show them, like show them visually through, you know, 1,500 other images that I have on there and then talk to them about it, 
you can kind of counteract that. And there's a lot of folks, I think, too, that are that new to that hunting, the whole hunting gig that take inspiration from that type of thing and hopefully move that route themselves. So when they're talking to their new friends and people that are new to it, that that's how they see it and view it as well. And it just becomes more of a, more of an option for people. No, I, I'd like to see a hunting photo contest where the goal was to award, uh, give the first place award to the person who has a photo that would recruit as many new hunters as possible. And I, wow. I, I, well, I, and I see your photos. I look at that and I go, I could see people <laughs> wanting to start hunting. Like I said, it, it's easy to take photos that appeal to fellow hunters. That's, yeah, that's sure. not very challenging. Um, no. And um, from a photography standpoint, um, we all enjoy similar things. But someone that's on the fence about whether they're going to hunt or not, it would be really neat to have a, I don't know, a recruitment photo contest. I'll call it that. Maybe we could challenge you to share with us when we advertise this podcast a photo that you thought might um, might accomplish that. Um, but I could probably think of something that would do that. That'd be fun. Yeah, so we could talk about that later. But the other aspect of your photography that fascinates me is I, I we see some of these folks that do photography and for companies or organizations that are staged, definitely staged. Um, but your stuff is, as you put it, I think one time organic. And so uh, it's more compelling to me because I, I don't think I've looked at a single one of your photos and went, Oh, he laid that bird over there or sent the dog back out. Um, you had a recent one of echo here that was clearly in the moment. Um, it was really neat. And, um, so I, I, this is hard to ask, but how do you, how do you plan for organic or can you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I thought about that a bunch because I, I, before this, I was thinking about that. And I thought how I don't go into any hunting day because we're, you know, we're, I'm a, as I said before, I'm a hunter. I'm a duck hunter first and I'm never hunting by, I rarely hunt by myself anymore. I've always got a buddy or two. And I can't, of course, make the whole day about me and my photos. So we hunt where we hunt. We hunt where it's going to be productive and good. And that spot location may or may not be conducive to photography. Um, but as I'm, as a season goes on, I, I try to think of, and there's days I miss these, but I try to think and kind of keep a rolling record in my head of images that I'd like to get. Maybe I caught a glimpse of it one morning as we were setting decoys and I didn't have my camera. I thought, okay, I need to get that. Or on the boat ride or picking up or something or someone was grabbing a duck or the sun came up a certain way in the spot and gosh, if we're back there, I need to do this. So I've always, I'm always kind of keeping that on my clipboard in my head thinking, okay, these are some things I want to do and I'd like to get. Uh, Whether or not that happens again, you never know. due to changing conditions and bird movements and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's kind of a big overview then on a day-to-day basis. I'm lucky that, that the guys I hunt with understand that this is what I do kind of for a job. This, I, I do work for a, a waterfowl company. I work for Avery and Banded. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't know that. All right. Not as a photographer specifically. It's part of the deal, but it's not like just 
my job. But um, so I do, I do get photos for that. Um, so they they understand that part, but they also understand the first few years when I started doing it, they didn't, they weren't super cooperative. When I'd say, "Hey, do you mind if I take photos for a few minutes while you guys are putting out decoys?" Or I'm going to try to get, you know, the stars while you guys are standing there. They're like, "Uh." Well, then a couple of years into it, now they're more than willing to let me take 10 minutes in the morning and catch those photos because it's them in it. And so they think it's really cool and they get to have those images of, those, of themselves. So a lot of it is having very cooperative hunting buddies. Um, and I typically try to remain part of the hunting of the, of the setup and takedown and all that as much as I can and just get snippets of the day as we go along. And just and get those little glimpses of things that happen. And, and you know, when I say my photos are, are organic, there's definitely times where I might be taking photos and I'll I'll say, "Hey, can you do that again?" <laughs> okay. like I, I missed some, I missed focus on on something. It was pitch black and there was somebody standing, and then the sun was coming up or whatever. Like, hey, can you just walk back and do that again? Mm-hmm. So the event happened. I'm just getting. I might be getting the second occurrence of it you know yeah so which i i guess i would consider to be pretty organic yet but um and there's probably some times where things are staged but occasionally there's certain things that you have to to get the shot but for the most part like you said it's noticeable if it happens and and i I just try to avoid that look more than anything because that's definitely it's it's by someone who's who's hunted a lot you'll notice that you know the difference, whether it's an elk hunting photo or a, or a duck hunting photo or whatever it is, you're going to know if it's not a legit scene. So yeah. that's that's like the one thing I always try to to be in whatever I do is just to be a, like a, a legitimate figure. Or I don't want to fake anything. So. Well, it doesn't come across that way to me. I, I don't know about others, but I, I'm, uh, I've certainly been in enough of those settings that um, – I don't. I don't think of them being set up. It's uh, so good for you. Good. Obviously, you're switching gears. We talked about earlier. What's 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 the next level of challenge? I mean, maybe we talked about this already, but continue to try to capture these scenes. Then is that um, where you want to continue to go? You know, I haven't really thought about that a ton in terms of what the next level. Um, you know, one one level of me improving is my photography overall. Um, and I always thought this would be easy, but it's, it's not for me. And it is for other people is product photography. We're trying to be product centric on photos. Um, Cause that's part of my job is dealing with that type of content. And I can get all sorts of the environmental photos and the, the mood type shots but trying to get something where it focuses on a product um, for me, that's something that I'm kind of trying to work on myself. I mean, it isn't like the passion of mine, but it's more of a practical thing. (laughs) So, but yeah, for without a doubt, continuing to get those, those moody shots. Um, I know if you know, Doug Steinke, if you've heard of him, I have. Yeah. He's another guy. I mean, like, he's like the guy he's got all these moody photos over the years he's done it he's been doing what i just started doing now for 10 years before i was so he's got that head start and he's got all these shots that are 
that just make you feel like you're just part of the scene and you wish you could be there. Those type of things. And that's, I just want to continue having those. I'd love to be able to fill my portfolio up on my website with just a hundred percent of photos that I thought every one of them was a 10 out of 10. You couldn't get better. And my wall, like here in my garage, my little office, have it completely covered with those kind of scenes, and which was really the main reason I started doing this, so I could have my own photos on my walls. So, yeah, you're close. You're you're close to ten out of ten. What I've seen, you post <laughs> everything. And, and and if people aren't familiar, and I think a lot of people are, will certainly uh, point to your your websites and uh, resources that access your photos and when we post this podcast. So, um, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll make sure people know where to find that stuff. So I'm sort of wrapping this up and transitioning a little bit into hunting. just what's, what's you want to offer, you offer tips through a couple other ways in the past blogs. And it sounds like you're going to resurrect your, your podcast. What is is there top three things you want to communicate to hunters and budding photographers, top five things. Um, you know, in terms of a, a hunting type thing, um, it, there's a lot of, well, if you want to relate photography and the hunting and that, that side of life, there's a, a lot of ways that the two are very similar. I approach them a lot the same. There's technical aspects to each, you know, whether it's learning how to blow a duck call or um, dealing with decoy spreads or running boats and then running your camera and learning how that, how all that runs and editing. You have technical aspects to each, but there's also aspects to each that are more of an ingrained experience and a learned experience in both, whether it's um, dealing with, you know, adverse lighting conditions on in photography or just having that experience of knowing geez, this spot, it looks great, but I don't think it's going to work because of X. There's all these different little things that when you go to put those together that I, I approach all of my photography kind of the same way as I do with hunting with trying to keep every little experience that I've had in my head and, and bring it back in when I'm sitting behind the lens or when I'm in my boat trying to figure out a spot to, to best get duck straight. Um, that's kind of a broad, a broad way to put it, but what it comes down to, if if you want to just talk just straight up hunting things that I found important, um, and and specifically duck hunting, um, you know, probably the most, the most important thing I would say is, is, and there's two aspects to this, there's one being in the right area. First and foremost, that means being in an area that has ducks. You can't always control that based on your the geography of where you live and the flight, the, the flyways and all that kind of stuff. But if you can get yourself near the best, biggest amount of birds, obviously that's should go without saying, but it isn't always that obvious. And then secondly, there's more of the spot on the spot type thing where, you know, okay, we're in an area where there's a lot of ducks or a lot of ducks are flying over. Now we need to get into that exact spot where ducks will be willing to come we can hide Um, the wind is right we can use the sun there's cover all those types of things to to make that part work so that location i think is always probably for us the the biggest thing um 
the first thing we think about. The second thing I always think about is hiding. Um, and yeah. that goes for both hunting and photography. Right? Yeah, it sounds like you're talking about both, basically. Yeah, yeah it, it really is. Um, you know, we hunt out of a big permanent blind, a big aluminum hard side blind, and, and we hide that thing. And, and the, to, to just shoot stuff, we wouldn't probably have to go over the lengths that we, we do to hide. But we don't want to just shoot ducks passing overhead at 30 yards. We want to have them below the gun barrel when we're shooting or hovering over the decoys at 10 yards. So that, and it's a small difference, and the end result is the same. You shoot ducks regardless. But the experience of getting them in there that close is, is the thing that I really love and interacting and completely fooling them and having that different experience is, is the deal i mean that's if i have a day where i'm gonna shot two ducks but those two ducks are both hovering over backpedaling over decoys at five yards i'm more satisfied leaving that day than i would be if i shot five mallards just flying over the top at 40 yards and you do you think that's connected mostly to being hidden i'm i'm a minimalist i well in in partial defense I often hunt places in Alaska where you just can't get big blinds into practically. Oh, for sure. And but I tend to be a minimalist even in areas where I can. So, and some of my hunting partners get frustrated with me because I flare birds. But do you <laughs> do you think that's the the one ingredient? I know you got some real uh, good information on building a boat blind, for example. Do you think that's yeah. the the one thing that finishes them the the most? Or, uh, I being, think so. Okay. Yeah, I think the I think your hide, and 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 there's a lot to that. I mean, it's it's not just the blind, but it's positioning the blind and using the sun, and using the shade, and and figuring in the wind and the way they're coming and how, and how and you know the, the the way the wind's blowing, and the sun is, it might not make sense to set up to them exactly with the wind at your back in a particular spot, because you're not as hidden there. But if you move over. 10 yards to the side, all of a sudden you're in a shadow and those ducks have no clue that you're there. And, uh, and the, a 10 yard move can sometimes mean birds flaring at 50 or birds landing and swimming around in your decoys. So I think the hiding is probably the biggest key to getting birds to finish. Um, without a doubt, I, I'm not like the decoy spreads. Um, I mean, Good decoys help decoy spreads and the, like the shape of them and where a particular decoy is or an X or a J. I'm not ever sold on that as being a real big thing in terms of how birds finish. Um, I think any almost any time a bird flares, they saw a boat or a face or a dog or they, they saw something that wasn't right, not just a, de- a decoy that was out of place or whatever. That's interesting. So you would put the hide over priority over anything, including wind, um, it sounds uh, like. Well, I've got that on my list here coming up because wind is huge. Well, just take a step back. I don't know if you remember that first podcast I did with Scott Stevens, but he was talking about he thought those shadows, like you just mentioned, were essential for hiding. And, mm-hmm. you know, he was saying on Bluebird Days, that's some of his best hunts. Is And he thought Absolutely. it was because he gets great shadows and gets yep. hidden. And it sounds no, like... No, I, any day I'd rather hunt on a sunny day than a cloudy day. Huh. 
we actually one time and in this i've never i never i knew something was was up with cloudy days um but we sent a drone up one day after day x say we saw we had an amazing hunt and it was sunny and we had shade like crazy coming off some fragments we were tucked back in and, and you almost couldn't see the boat or you couldn't differentiate, differentiate it from fragmites around you. And the next day it was cloudy and we sent a drone up to look. And I mean, it was, it was, you might as well have had a pink boat sitting out in the fragmites. It was that big of a difference because you don't get that shade and the shadows to break things up. And we just, I mean, we looked like a duck boat. Interesting. And so I, I think that's, I think the, the sun in that shade is a huge deal. Now, there's always the, oh, ducks don't fly as low and that, which is probably true. Ducks probably tend to fly higher on a sunny day in some areas. But I think they're more susceptible to calling the decoys when the, when the sun is shining on the decoys. And there, there's something about it, like a cold, crisp day that's different than a cold, cloudy day. Interesting. I've kind of got I've got weather broken down here as my next thing, which in, incorporates both the wind and the sun as how they affect things. And that wind is huge. I mean, it does a couple of things. It I don't and I don't I have no idea how to explain this scientifically. Just through experiences that on a on a dead dead calm day, you can you can get ducks like mallards for somebody to break down from just flying overhead but to get them to finish really nice is a lot more difficult um, partially i think because they can come in from whichever way they want which may tend to be over your blind they're looking more at the calling because they're not having to focus on just trying to fight their way in i don't know what it is but they seem to respond more crisply and Everything about it when you have a ten to fifteen mile hour wind seems better than when you have a two. Um, yeah, I agree. Is there an upper limit I, to that? Do you think? Not to get too technical, but I, I would. You know, I, I've seen it be detrimental, but I always laugh because one thing, I, one of my favorite things to hear duck hunters have for an excuse for a day is, "Oh, it was just too windy for him to get down in." I've heard that so many times. Like, well, so you mean to tell me on a on a windy day that these ducks just never land they <laughs> fly around all day long until the wind comes down. Well, that's true. I, I believe that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I don't think that's really the case. So they get down. I mean, we had a couple really, really good days this year in some 30 to 40 mile an hour winds, which is typically more than I'd want. I think the, um, the downside to those really strong winds is that any decision they make to get out of Dodge happens instantly yeah the, the instant they open those wings up they're gone yeah and it doesn't even have it's almost like they can just not even want to go but just think about it and it just happens and they're gone yeah so i think when you get that 25 to 30 to 40 i mean it's it's tough but i'd probably take 30 over zero yeah the one experience i have hunting geese in a field setting they they hover in that really heavy yep. wind and they just scrutinize every thing they can. You could see them looking down and just looking for the smallest thing, but ducks don't seem to hover as much. I don't think. Not as much, but that brings us right back to the, 
thing I talked about how important hiding is. Yeah. Because then you've got, because then they've, if you're hidden, the, the days that we had that good success on the windy days, we were basically invisible. We had all sorts of stuff going on to hide us. So you kind of have to combine all the aspects to get it to work right. Yeah, wind is wind is definitely important. There's no doubt. Wind and sun are are are, are critical. I would say for a photography too. I mean, as you know, mm-hmm. you know those sunny days for photography are, are much better uh, <laughs> than yeah, the cloudy sun, days. Sun in the in the morning, an east wind or a southeast wind. I mean, if you have a if you have a west wind in the morning and it's sunny, it's almost not worth going because you're going to be shooting into the sun unless you do something different like shoot sideways birds or what and, I, and that's one thing i've learned try to try to not focus on quite so much it's just the decoying incoming bird rather than and then i'm trying to expand my bird photography to be where it's more just birds flying around or maybe sideways type of thing because um, you, you can't do the you can't on a west wind morning you can't really set a bunch of decoys out with the wind at your back and try to shoot ducks and have any detail when birds are flying with the sun at their back. It just doesn't work. Right. So. And especially for those divers. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, black and white, it's impossible. Yeah. You've got the, you got the extreme of both exposure ranges there. So it's, it's terrible for that. Um, So yeah, the wind is super key for both sides of life and the sun. Really? I mean, actually, realistically photographing ducks even in the spring even after it hasn't been seasoned for a few months is 10 times more difficult than trying to decoy birds and hunt birds in the fall mm-hmm. because the the range that you need them at and the lowness on the horizon the level on the horizon that you need them to be down is so much different than you need them hunting i mean you can shoot a duck 10 feet above the horizon and it feels like you had them right in your decoys but if you take a photo of that same duck all you're going to see is blue sky in the background and that's not a really intriguing photo for people to look at unless he's doing some really funky maneuver or whatever but in general those photos just aren't as engaging as as something with background and the environment behind them yeah that's interesting i mean some of the I go for those photos sometimes because, as you pointed out earlier, the autofocus is so much easier when you don't have a competing background and uh, yep. that's really close to the birds. So I've seen yep. a, 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 the guy on 406 Images comment about how much he doesn't like those birds just in a sky background. And I'll be, damn, that's the only ones I could get. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the perfect photo is like that the duck about a half second before he hits the horizon before he's into it but yet so you can focus on him easy and you've still got all the nice the water the cattails whatever and then the sky you've got everything right and once they, once they hit that horizon line it is a whole different world and trying to keep the focus on them i mean i've got i've probably deleted 500 percent more photos than i've kept from that point on yeah because it's the best even the best focusing systems and whoever's running the camera it's hard it's really hard to keep that sucker on task when it's when they're zigging and zagging trees and all that in the background yeah there's for the inventors out there there's a game that should be invented for uh you know you could do 
whether it's in focus or not would be like, do you kill it or not, right? It's uh, would you, yeah. if you were shooting a gun instead of a camera, um, yeah. would, it, would it kill the bird? So you could go on a level of focus. <laughs> the problem I'd is look, it'd be neat like if you could put a lead on I like to look back at some of the ones, and I, I wish I'd have done this earlier and started it earlier, but I started keeping, and I haven't been very vigilant with it, but keeping a, a photo of the, or a file on my Lightroom of the, the really close, but not quite, photos of where the image would have been absolutely unbelievable, but it was just out of, or fairly out of focus, or significantly out of focus. I mean, there's times where if you didn't know, you could probably barely tell it was a duck. It's so out of focus. And I've got them, but yet they're like almost upside down or sideways or the feet are kicked out or something really neat. But yet the focus was completely blown and you just think, oh man. And how common it is because it's so hard. So I'll be curious to see if that Sony does better for you. I, I, uh, Cause I, I know my percentage in focus is increasing. You must be over 50%, I would guess, or in focus when you're on a typical shoot. Uh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> let's say like an awesome morning for me would be, I don't know, a thousand photos that I took. Um, after my first round of kicking out the images that I know I'm not going to use, whether it's due to just being boring or being out of focus i mean i probably cut i probably cut half out of that immediately right off the bat just half of them gone yep um and then the ones that i keep and actually edit are probably half of that maybe yep maybe maybe not even that high maybe 25 percent of that depending on the day so it's a lot of quantity you need you need to be around a lot of birds to do it. That's for sure. Yeah. But just to go back to hunting here, um, you started to say weather beyond, or you thinking beyond wind and wind, um, weather factors for duck hunting. Is there anything more you wanted to add to that? Um, I know temperature matters. I've, I've had a lot of good days in warm. I've had a lot of good days in cold cold days if, if you get those really cold snaps it seems to stress them a little bit and i don't know if that's the right term or not but it seems like they're much more susceptible to anything to seeing other ducks on the water to hearing a duck call being blown they're just kind of out and just it seems like they're just waiting to come in to the right scenario um, whereas on a warm day you have to do more things right and be more vigilant whereas on those really really cold days they're just kind of there for the taking mm-hmm. um, a, a snow day a snowy day uh, in a field is amazing which i don't really field hunt ducks very much um or and i do geese a little bit a snowy day and those is amazing rain uh, i'm cloudy so I'm no, i don't love rainy days very much and then a cold front, you know, a front, a front system with temperatures dropping north of you and having new birds. That makes all the difference in the world. Having fresh, fresh ducks to work with is probably 
if I guess if I were to put that on one of my things that's important to duck hunting, that's probably <laughs> maybe the, the number one thing, even over location and hiding. Like if you have fresh birds, a lot of that other stuff isn't really important as long as you have some around you because they are um, way more susceptible than to ducks who've been in your area for two weeks or three weeks or a month or however that works. Yep. Um, seems like one quick little note I like to always relay on that is I think it's funny is that you know, I'm, I say I'm in the northern, I'm considered to be in the northern part of the flyway. For you, I'd be way in the southern part of the flyway. <laughs> <laughs> but but we, get, we get first crack at a lot of birds, I would say. And it's funny because a lot of the guys down south always think how easy we have it in late September or early to mid-October. And there's just something different about the ducks that makes that not 100% true even though, yes, they haven't been shot at as much, they haven't been hunted as hard, there's something about, well, a couple things. One, I think those ducks grew up and just have lived in that area forever, so they're accustomed to following a pattern. They they land on such and such part of this lake or this bay <laughs> on this flue or however that works. They're always going to a certain area. They've, they've been there their whole life for the, the past four or five months. Um, by the time October rolls around. So they're hard to get out of that pattern. But also, uh, ducks in general just are not as responsive to calling and decoys in September. And I generally like to say like the 20th or 25th of October as they are after that period. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's a different world up here at the opener. I mean, we have some really naive young ducks for sure um the calling is interesting because for us i mean a late fall is is late september early october as far as interior duck hunting right so that's when they start to respond to calling is they're responding to whatever cues they're getting and it's like oh now it's time to pair up um where you're probably (laughs) seeing local birds just starting to think about that later and uh i guess i don't see that here at all really yeah yeah and we're I'm just curious, in, in, do you see trends, though, in, in timing of things here? I'm, we talked about weather. Oh, do you see climate-related sure. factors that you think are trending? Um, climate, like, changing? Yeah, well, or timing of migration or behaviors that over, what, your 35 years, I think you said, have you seen yeah. changes that uh, you see might be related to? Um, um, you know, I don't know. We... So where I've been hunt, I've been hunting in this area now for twelve or thirteen years, <clears throat> and it's very it's sporadic, and to the point of where I don't think I could say there's a a real trend because we have we are, we're just we have, have such a strange deal where we're located here. We can um, these past two years we've had very hard freezes the first week in November where most small water was frozen by the 10th. Um, but we've had, had years where I hunted on some of the lakes around here until into December, um, which ha- normally when that happens, we move to, a, um, to the river once everything freezes. So I can't, I can't say I've seen a trend strictly on the weather but i have seen 
and, and part of this is one of the places I hunt, uh, Barney Kalis used to make a bunch of videos about it. And he has videos from 20 years ago where they were there in October shooting significant amount of ducks in t-shirts in mid to late October. Wow. And I would probably not even consider hunting that area now until at least the second week of November. I mean, mid early to mid November. So, you know, that's only a three week difference, but it's, it's a pretty solid three week difference that it just doesn't, I can't say it doesn't happen anymore. And cause I don't, try it a ton but i've tried it enough that it isn't nearly as successful as it seemed to have been back then yeah and i know that she does and i know that he doesn't come there anymore that time of year either so yeah that's interesting i you know i think we're in an area that it's a little more apparent but i i think i said this on other podcasts but the interior alaska in the early 1990s we rarely hunted past september it was rare that there wow. were conditions that you could boat past september and now yeah. it's predictable that we'll have till mid-october and um and even the third week of october sometimes we've almost doubled the length of our hunting season in interior that is but um yeah. but and the ducks seem to be changing behavior too it's you know getting serious about mallards doesn't happen till much later they're just not receptive to decoying early on they just don't care and um they have a lot of options, a lot of water, you know, widging around. They're, they're willing participants, as we call them. But um, yep. that, that trending in those bird, in the weather, climate, and bird behavior is really apparent over that 30-year period here. Um, and then I'm just curious about other places what people are seeing and that have been in a place for a long time. Yeah, I, I think if I had hunted, um, if I had been... Because even, you know, I'm only, I'm only three and a half hours away from my hometown. But the I think just the general climate where I'm at right now is different enough from that that I, I can't relate my prior experiences and timing exactly. I can't, I can't translate central Minnesota, southern Minnesota to uh, southern South Dakota. Um, there's just some geographical differences i think that make our weather and climate different enough anyways but i wouldn't be able to say that's the thing i'm sure if i talk to guys oh i've heard enough stories from guys who hunted the places i do that they talk about it being different um, so anecdotally definitely seems like a thing um and then in the, in the 12 years i've been here i just i feel like you see We've definitely seen a change in the ducks, and I don't know what has changed exactly because, um, as you know, there's a, um, probably a million different factors that, that have changed that. Um, so, yeah. But it'd be interesting. Maybe we'll uh, challenge some people in the podcast to comment on what they've seen in changes that, you know, people have hunted a place for 20 plus years. I'd be curious to see if folks want to offer their thoughts, and maybe they haven't seen anything, um, but it'd be interesting to to query you know, people it, it is a little i mean there's even a couple i guess a little a few little changes that we've seen here in the past year many years that i've hunted here we wouldn't be hunting past december 10th you're pushing it to have open water and this year we hunted 
I shot at Lemon and Mallards on December 27th, and we had open water aplenty. Mm-hmm. So it's and it's been that way for a few years. So there's there's changes. There's, there's undoubtedly changes on that. It's just, but then the next year we can have an extreme swing of a four day, a very cold four day snap, and then all of a sudden it's done. So it's hard to base it strictly off of the hunting side, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And no, good information. though. that's really interesting. I was hoping you wouldn't say back to the keys to hunting that getting hidden is uh, the key because now my friends are going to really harass me about that. But uh, um, yeah, but I I have to probably agree with you. <laughs> so so just um just kind of wrapping up here. I just what do you see for the future? What do you uh what message do you want to leave people with photography and or hunting? Um, what what thoughts do you want to pass on to folks? If you look at the future of both of those, um, I think the future of photography has an impact on the future of hunting, not vice versa so much. But a lot of what's coming out and what people are consuming for media in general about hunting is based on photography and photographers and the social media scene. Which, um, if you look at a lot of the general trends, kind of like we talked about, is a little disheartening um, because a lot of it I don't think is focused on the right things. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things focused on you know, the piles of birds or shooting bands only. Um, I mean, when I see a 16 year old kid burst into tears because he shot his first band, I'm like, man, like when I was 16, I never even considered getting a band it was the last thing on my mind and i really would it would have been neat but i certainly wouldn't have, wouldn't have been the pinnacle of my hunting career to have done that so there's it's there's changing that the i think some of the uh, the goals of hunting are changing it seems like based on it's not just social media but it's tv and it's all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. so hopefully that's one of the things that I can help impact a little bit is that, you know, a person can go out and enjoy just the actual experience, the birds themselves, being around them, being in the moment, all that type of stuff that maybe isn't the focus of, of a lot of that, that media that gets thrown out at people. Um, but there's also a large amount of people who don't, even know about that side of life yet so just the hope i think for for hunting to stay stay grounded as it is photography so many changes that happen i mean the 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 way that gear has changed even in just 10 years and if, if you go back 20 years to now it's unbelievable the way gear has changed and even in 10 years it's it's changed a ton what people are what's what's capable and then the way that people can access information how to use that gear is incredible i mean i'm i'm i've done some myself with some youtube things and and just trying to help people on my instagram page there's so much more information out there on how to run a camera and how to how to set things up for this and that that the amount of photographers that are amazing right now is i always I tried to keep, when I started my Instagram page, I tried to keep it below a couple hundred people that I followed so that I could really 
devote myself to following their stuff and being interactive with them. And then I'm over 700 people that I follow because there's so many. And that's really pretty limited just the waterfowl hunting guys. There's a few people in the big game world I follow or follow and outside of that. But I mean, well over 600 of those people are all waterfowl photographers and it's grown so much and there's just so much good stuff out there and so many people doing it that uh, you're bound to have that many more great people that come out of it that are more creative and have new ideas and it's, it's neat to see it um, and, a lot, and the more authentic and that's one thing it's becoming harder to be I think authentic because there's been a lot of stuff that's been done so it's a challenge to stay ahead of the game without a doubt there's a few people that do it and I love to watch them. And, you know, of course I take cues from them too. So yeah, people take a couple from me maybe once in a while. Well, I hope you keep doing what you're doing. I, I think you're a, uh, in my opinion, a great ambassador for hunting and hunters and, uh, and I'm talking to you now for a little over an hour. I, I see why, um, I, I, your motive is motives are, uh, I share a lot of them and I, you seem very accomplished at trying to communicate them. So I, I hope you were able to do this long into the future. So I, I thank you for that. I appreciate it. Yeah. I have to get you down here on sometime. Yeah. I, so, I visit North I, Dakota periodically. I guess some friends in Bismarck and, uh, actually last year I was in Saskatchewan hunting. Um, it's a little hard to leave here. I, I really enjoy it here. Although, although I Yeah. I'm the same way with here. People always ask me to come hunt other places, and I'm just like, man, I've got it good at home, and what, what if I need to travel 800 miles for during the same time period? So yep. I get it completely. Yep. So I give everybody the option of finishing with a story here. I just interviewed some guys on a backcountry hunt that told a story about having to snuggle with a fat friend of theirs. I'm thinking we're going to have trouble beating that one. It's not out there yet, but um, I'll, I'll give you the option. Mike Gold's story about Rambo, the pointer, the ugly pointer is a pretty good one too, but you got to have a great story from, you got 35 years that you want to share. So, um, just hunting in general or highlight, low light. Sure. At, at photography, hunting, filling waders, whatever. Just uh, something people might in be entertained by oh man let me see i'm looking over some pictures on my wall just to try to find a, a highlight moment um there's too many <laughs> i have a lot of highlights but none of them are going to be super exciting unless unless you were there type thing um well i was reading a story about bouncing out in the boat and knocking the lights off from waves oh, and yeah. you got to have a few yeah, stories that, like that, that was that was a recent one I yeah can, that was um so yeah this i'll make it not too long um i was able to rent a house near an area where i hunt a lot and it's pretty it's big water and it, it can be really big water with the wind going the right direction and we had we'd been hunting for a couple of days and we woke and we knew there was going to be a storm overnight so we we set our alarm for a normal 4.15 time. Woke up, and I could hear the wind. I thought, well, that's not a deal breaker. So we got up. I woke up, walked out to the front window, opened up the shade, looked out at the street light, and I thought, oh, boy. 
I don't think, even though I'm a very adventurous, I don't think I dare take a boat out in this because uh, the wind was blowing or the snow was blowing sideways. Couldn't probably couldn't see a few hundred yards in town. It was nasty. Uh, well, we're going to go back to bed. So I told my buddy, so I'll let's just, let's crash for a little bit longer. See what it's like. So we waited like two hours, six thirty or so. I thought, I think sun, it got, they got light out at like seven fifteen or something like that. Six thirty, woke up. I thought, ugh, it's not any better. It's snowing just as hard and every bit as windy, if not worse. This is like thirty to forty mile an hour winds. And I thought, well, let's go back to bed. So I went back to bed. I woke up at eight, and it was should have been light out, but it was still dark because it was so or darkish. We woke up and thought, oh man. This is uh, pretty rough, but let's let's just get dressed, and we're just going to go to the boat launch, take the boat, see what it looks like. And uh, a 15-minute drive took 30 minutes to get to the boat launch. And we got there, and there was no tracks going into the boat launch. No one had been there, no boats there. Thought, well, we're the only dummies that are stupid enough to try this, so what does that tell us? And I'm always the guy that says, well, you know what? We just got to go. We just got to get out there. Once you're out there, it's not so bad. So, and the friend of mine I was with used to be a, uh, used to run boats on the uh, eastern shore out in the ocean. And he thought it was okay. So I thought, well, between the two of us, we have enough experience. We, we can make this work. So we uh, we get dressed in the wind and we put our waders on and it's nasty and it's cold and we're kind of standing, trying to stand behind the truck out of the wind, and all you can hear is the waves crashing on the shore and the wind ripping through the trees and the snow flying by. So I'm thinking, what are we doing? And we, I get in the boat, and he starts backing me in. I'm thinking, we need to get this boat off the trailer right away, and we need to get in the water and turned around and just facing the waves so we're not taking them over the back and all that stuff. And, and it was nasty. And we got in and got going. I got back to shore. He jumped in, threw the dog in. And we take off. And we had a, about a half a mile of a, of a crossing to make where the wind was. We were right in the wide open at the long end of the lake or river on in the wind. And it was not pleasant. My boat was probably at a 30-degree angle tilted to the wind because I was a big blind on it. So it catches more wind. And we, we cut across that sucker um, and the steering wheel turned, you know, probably a full turn, trying to bank against the wind. And we got out of the wind and kind of took a deep breath and slowed down a little bit and took our way, took our time to get up to our spot. And it was like a six-mile boat ride. And we had one more big spot where there was a full, full exposure to the wind. And it was enough to kind of rattle your teeth loose type deal. And we got up there and, and and we essentially had what turned into a 12-minute duck hunt by the time by the time we got decoy set up, got in the boat, had basically a flurry of, of ducks that you couldn't beat them away, mallards landing within 10 yards of us. Um, I, I don't think I could have a better day hunting than that ever, um, other than I'd like it to last more than 10, 12 minutes. But when it happens, it's just really hard to say no. But you got your camera out, so you can you extended your hunt morning. So yeah, I got my camera and we had the cell phone and we took a bunch of videos and we were cooking, cooking breakfast, and we had so we we stayed there for another hour, maybe a little bit more. I don't know, just kind of enjoying it. 
and um, watching. And it, it was one of those days where it was it was really like the grand pass, like the, the migration was happening right over our heads. We watched snow geese and speckabellies and Canada's by the thousands and mallards just go, 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 heading north or heading south. And it was just one of those really, really neat days. And as we sat there eating breakfast, I thought to myself, well, uh, we have to still get back to the boat launch. And the wind hasn't gone down any bit yet. And we got back. We picked up. And I'm in, in my mind, since I'm the boat driver, it's my boat. You know, there's always that sense of responsibility of you're in charge of the people's lives who are with you. So it was kind of weighing on me the whole time. And we got... Uh, we got in and got going. It was calm for the first little bit. Then we got back into the couple of those spots where it was nasty. And I thought, oh, my, what am I doing? Got out of it. And I got back to the boat. And we got back to our house. And we changed clothes and everything. And I look at the boat just to make sure it was still intact. And, of course, um, like I mentioned in my Instagram post, that the light bar on the front of my boat, it had ripped the bolts. It was so rough, it ripped the bolts straight through the aluminum. Um and it was just dangling by the cord. And I thought, well, that's a pretty good sign that we maybe don't need to do that again. And we had to we'll make a little run to the, to the hardware store just to fix it and get some washers to take care of it so we could do it again the next day. But those are the kind of days that you always you remember, more so than the days when it was 40 degrees and sunny and you still shot them. But that day, I'll never, I'll never forget that day because it was probably the craziest string of events that we've had happen duck hunting so. yeah and you know you can't explain to somebody that well nobody would probably do that unless they were hunting right so well it's it's funny because i posted that and a friend of mine that lives in missouri hunts the same river river but just further down the system and he uh he sent me a video of him and i have videos of me doing it which i don't post because i don't want to give away my spots but it looks it looks rough to me knowing being there and I know what things should look like. And he sent me a, a video very similar from right around the same time period. And I said, and this is just a couple of days ago, he sent it to me. I said, you know, it's funny because if I haven't hadn't been in that same scenario myself, I would think it didn't look very rough. Right. But knowing what your boat was doing and what the waves were doing. I know what it was like to be in that scenario. You were probably hanging on for dear life thinking, just get me out of here. So yeah, if you weren't, if you haven't been there and haven't experienced it yourself or, and have never had that, anything like that happen, you don't truly get it until you are the guy stuck in that scenario. Right. It's happening. Yeah. And how do you capture that? And how do you communicate it? I mean, nobody's out there recreational boating. No one's out there because they're bird watching. <laughs> Right, it's truly a hunting no. experience, and and you probably would have enjoyed it almost as much had you gone out there and maybe killed a couple birds and a couple hours of hunting. Is my bet because it's the whole package, right? It's um, yeah, it, that's the whole deal. Like that's that's. I mean, I I, I meant to mention sort of that's part one of the whole things that I love about the way I try to hunt is I try to make it an adventure. I could easily go sit in a, a dry cornfield around my house and probably shoot a whole bunch more ducks than I maybe do otherwise. Right. But I don't get the same thing as I do out of the way that I've chosen to, to really direct my hunting. And so it's fun. And 
and that's that's part of the deal and those are the stories i can i can tell and, and try to relate to someone and people love to hear it because maybe not everyone gets to experience that so yeah yeah my dad said to me long ago and it seemed trite at the time but it made a lot of sense he goes once you pull the trigger this was deer hunting in pennsylvania where you only get to shoot one he said you know the hunt's over and it's and i was like wow he's right you know and i find myself trying to extend the hunt uh in some ways too because i want to be out there longer and uh you know, yeah, maybe feel. pass on some birds just so I get to stay longer and walk further. I love upland hunting, as you may know. And yeah. um, and it's, uh, yeah, I people that don't hunt can't understand that. But, again, circling back, I think that's what you're communicating. I mean, I know you can't show video all that to reveal <laughs> your spot. But, I, you know, your still we'll photography, I think, is capturing those moments that, you only get because you're out there hunting, and um, yeah, I don't. In my opinion, your story at the end characterizes that very well, and hopefully, people, hunters and non-hunters alike, are listening to that going, "I, I want some of that experience." So, um, I hope that comes out of this podcast a little. Makes you feel alive. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. Well, <laughs> if you're looking for adventure, we have it a plenty. So uh, please. Uh, well, Think I'm about to be up that way in the next couple of years doing uh, caribou hunts. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's one of my favorite forms for sure. So, uh, yeah. yeah, you don't have to create adventures here. The uh, land no. does it for you. So. It's just what it, that's just what it is. It is what it is, exactly. When the, when the plane flies away, it's all, it's going. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's good stuff. My duck hunting spot is a two-hour boat ride in, and people, people don't. Wow. Yeah, don't. I would, I would love that. Well, the, invi- the invitation's there, so um, we'll uh, we'll figure it out sometime down the road. That'd be fun. All right, Phil. Well, thanks for, for your time. This has been great, exactly what I was after, and um, yeah, thanks. Hey, appreciate having me on. You've been listening to the Hunting Science Podcast. To find show notes on this episode and to leave comments and continue the conversation, visit our website at community.uif.edu slash hunting science.